Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose, a podcast made possible by Skylife Success, a SkyPass group company. Join Krish Dunham, an author and speaker whose messaging has been described as the junction where God's ability and man's availability meet hope's accessibility. Greetings and welcome to another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. Thank you very much for hanging in there with us uh, as we creep towards the end of April, slowly but steadily in the year 2021. And I'm looking back on my notes, and I think we began this journey sometime in the middle of last year during the height of the pandemic. Every other day, we have tried to bring you some value and uh, with the repetitions and some of the information that uh, we were able to add to some of those repetitions, I think we have amassed close to 85 or 90 messages. Many have asked how we continue to do the things we do amidst all of the anxiety. I think uh, most of our desire and uh, our hope is that we will continue to be able to be asked and continue to be able to motivate. This weekend, I had the privilege of being with the church uh, where I had the chance to deliver six different sessions ranging from the cost of conviction all the way up to some specific messages on the call and the calling. And we're hoping that that new audience that now is going to join us will benefit from what we are adding here as well. Continue to share the word. Some of you have asked about a devotion that I've been putting out. Uh, That one is on the app Telegram under Krish's Devotions. It's one I put out every other day. It is designed to have a condition, which is taking a scripture, evaluating it against life, writing some observations that come from purely a layperson's perspective with no theological attachment or equivalence to it, and then an application that hopefully will generate some hope and put a little pep in your step. I think of all the things I have done in the 30 plus years of public ministry, public speaking, evangelism, and other attributes that have taken me around the globe as a communicator, that little devotion that I try to write or endeavor to write and put out every other day, which is about three paragraphs or less, will take you less than two minutes to read, has generated more positivity, has generated more conversation, and has generated more hope. Hope you'll join us there as well. Some weeks ago, I was on a program with a group of folks from India who were trying to create some new avenues of teaching and create some new avenues of curriculum dispersion that would allow teachers to have a different kind of model in the classroom. And they gave me a broad title called Educating for Value. Educating for Value. As I was thinking of what we can offer to you this Monday, I said educating for value may be a good theme to undertake today. Uh, Maybe explore some missives within that, uh, try to create some motifs and paint a plan of action, give us about three or four specific steps. And if we need to revisit it, we can always add another one because uh, this is our medium, this is our time together. And uh, most of who journey with me in this are just friends looking for some kind of comfort in addition to the camaraderie we try to prepare. Some years ago, I heard a famous preacher give a poem, and the poem talked about where we are when we look at educating for value. 
and the poem simply goes this way. He came to my desk with a quivering lip. The lesson was done. Have you a new sheet for me, dear teacher? I've spoiled this one. I took his sheet all soiled and blotted and gave him a new one all unspotted. And to his tired heart I cried, do better now, my child. And I think I've shared this one before and uh, it bears repetition because the second part of that poem is really what gets me every time I look at it and I look at educating for value. The second one talks about the humble devotion that we have when we look at a master who creates us, a God who ordains us, a divine protector who delivers us, one who sits in his holy temple and asks us to just come to him in silent submission. The second part of that same poem goes this way. I went to the throne with a troubled heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. And to my tired heart, he cried, do better now, my child. When I look at educating for value, I think of two components in civilization that have actually been at loggerheads with each other. The first is a redo or a reset that is academic, that is curriculum or, or oriented, uh, that requires a pass or fail, that has a competitive graph of some kind. Uh, in some cultures, coming first or coming last uh, has shame, coming first has high honor. In other cultures, they have almost bla that is blasphemy, so they create a curve. In yet other cultures, they give participation trophies because they don't want anybody to feel like a loser and everybody feel like a winner. But that's not how life operates, but maybe in some fair and divine way. The only place where we can get that fairness is at the throne of grace. Uh, when you go to God and say, I've spoiled my day, not just a sheet of paper, not just an act, not an application, not some kind of modus operandi that you perform in that gets you paid, but if you spoiled your day, which means you woke up, you went to perform, and you felt that you accomplished nothing, as a denizen of humanity, as a citizen of this global rendezvous with destiny, you basically came up short. So you went to bed thinking to yourself, man, that day was a total bust. What if a bunch of those days strung together and a marginal depression began to set in? What if the number of days uh, slowly became a year and we were marginalized on the sidewalk and all of the people who were giving us orders and instructions, none of it was hopeful, none of it was, it was all preventive. Maybe some of it rightfully so because they decided they had to protect us from a pandemic. But it's ironic that the only people who didn't lose their livelihood, didn't lose their sanity, didn't lose their equilibrium, didn't lose their family, and didn't lose their belongings were the ones passing the rules and passing the laws. I don't know of one person in authority who lost his job as a result of this or lost his livelihood as a result of this or whose lifestyle was altered as a result of this, but they played God to us. But there's only one who's above them. Before there was a contagion, there was a creator. Before there was a disease, there was a deity. Before there was this contamination, there was something called created order. I went to the throne with a troubled heart. The day was done. Have you a new day for me, dear master? I've spoiled this one. He took my day all soiled and blotted and gave me a new one all unspotted. And to my tired heart, he cried, do better now, my child. Now, granted, when we go to the throne of grace, we are forgiven for our past mistakes. We are assured of a future hope. And in the present, we are given a holy counselor and a guide. And that is biblical. That is theological. But what about the practical? 
How do we educate for value in a practical way so that you who are within the listening sound, uh, listening this range of my voice are saying to you, Krish, I hear you loud and clear. I blew this day. I messed up. I crumpled my sheet. It's blotted. It's spotted. Uh, Is there hope for me? Well, what you're asking me to do is don the hat of a teacher, which is what those people asked me to don when I wore that, uh, when I joined that Zoom call on educating for value. As an instructor, I tell people yesterday did end with last night. Failure is not final. It's not futile. It's not fatal. Failure throughout the history of humanity has been an event. It has never been a person. You can fail at something. You cannot fail as someone. God loves you too much. And that's why he says, I'll take your day all soiled and blotted and give you a new one all unspotted. And to our tired heart, only he can cry, do better now, my child. See, as teachers, as communicators, and if you're not in that realm, but you have somebody depending on you for information, uh, somebody depending on you for some kind of a boost, some kind of a motivation, some kind of positivity, if there are people in your household who are looking up at you amidst the darkness and the despair that is all around, saying, give me hope, my day is blotted, my day is done, my day is damaged, I need something unspotted and clean so that I can fight again. As teachers, we have the rare ability to convince students about the joy of learning, convict them with a sense of purpose, condition them for a life of progress, chastise them when they err in their ways, compliment them when they excel in their ways, and compel them to live out their God-given potential. I had some amazing teachers throughout my youth, and some of them course-corrected me when their board of education would meet my seat of learning. So the cane of dependence was something that was not a crutch given to me so that I could lean on. It was something used on uh, on my hindquarters to remind me that there was authority and authority was still in charge. So some of the mistakes we make are our own making, and maybe we do need a course correction for that. And God is the first one to say he rebukes and he abhors this pride that manifests in humanity. But as teachers, I cannot imagine of a more glorious profession. I can't imagine a greater joy and a greater manifest hope that is produced by people who take on this mantle, this mantle that I will teach, I will instruct, I will educate. That's why Adrian Rogers always said, learn as if you will live forever, teach as if you will die tomorrow. A world without teachers would be a lesson without answers, a book without pages, a story without morals, a map without destination, and a building without rooms. A book without pages. Well, there are some books that should have no pages, and these are the books that are the biggest books on the planet, and they endeavor to educate us on the nothingness of humanity and how we came out of nothing, and we are abstract, and from zoo, goo to zoo to you, and uh, we are a random collocation. And again, I'm not going to get off on a debate here, though you can see me getting charged up on the whole evolution and creation aspect. But the very basis of a scientific self-image is birthed to the fact that when you look in the mirror and you see that you came out of nothing, out of flux, flux, what is the hope that you're going to have that today will be better? Because if you're a random collocation of atoms, then you're just a byproduct of chance. But Imago Dei, if you believe you were created in the image of God and you believe that he can give you some semblance of hope, he created you in his image and he anointed you with a purpose, as the prophet Jeremiah says, long before you came as forth, before you were in your mother's womb, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. If you can believe that kind of a promise, then suddenly the day, is uns- the day that was blotted is now returned to you unspotted. 
a day that you participated in as a random uh, as a random chance encounter is now given back to you as a providential definer that actually has destiny written on it and had an origin birth in it a world without teachers would be lessons without answers and there are many people out there when i ask them a question they say does it really matter what they are saying is not only do i not know the answer i don't even have any frame of reference about the question and that is tragic if it is not it's not downright dumb and by that i mean that ignorance and insolence will only lead you so far in life and that's uh, when you start writing these humongous volumes about nothingness I remember tongue in cheek some years ago I began to read Bertrand Russell's The Problem with Philosophy or something like that he was an atheist mathematician and probably a very brilliant one I never met him so I'm not going to disparage him but as I began to read his book he talked about how different people would look at furniture differently and how the light that refracted off the surface of the furniture would look at its grain and give you a different kind of luminescence so if you looked at it at a certain angle you would see spots if i looked at it at a certain angle i would see sheen and stripes or whatever but as he was explaining that what he was talking about was the randomness of humanity that each of us looks at the world in our own way and we create our own reality Someone asked me at the end of that if I understood philosophy better. I said no, I started doubting furniture. Because I'm not a complex guy. I don't need really complex answers, but I at least need people to realize that there are questions that do need answers. How about uh, teachers basically saying story without morals? If there is no good and if there is no bad, if there is no right and if there is no wrong, if there is no up and if there is no down, if there is no evil, then there is no good. What are we zombies walking around we're trying to figure out if someone else has the right morals and people always argue this issue of objective morality and a god-given law and a lawgiver and subjective morality that man makes and they say why are you so afraid of subjective morals and as one uh, person put it the people who talk about subjective morals uh, and us not needing any kind of armory around us are the same people who make these statements with armed guards beside them Most of these people that ask us to open our homes and welcome everything in the name that all that is decent. Yeah, that's Samaritan identity and that is goody two shoes and yeah, who wouldn't want to do that? But would you any day of the week leave your house unlocked at night because you believe in your heart of hearts that you need to be in charity? Well, there is a there is a there is a basic premise that you're not worried about your own morality in going and looting other people because you believe there is a right and a wrong, but you're obviously worried about someone else who can come barging into your door and he begins to say, "Hey, you know what? In the name of all that is civil and decent, I'm just here to take your stuff, but you know what? You're a man who doesn't believe in morality, so just let me take it, no harm, no foul." Why then do we suddenly get possessive? So the laws are only okay if they affect others but the boundaries are really difficult when they begin to encroach on us. But this is what teaching does and this is what we are seeing a huge dearth of and that's why people are walking through life saying hey my page is crumpled my page is blotted I don't know what to do because nobody ever corrected them because we felt that there was no lesson to learn. We said we'll go around as wandering generalities we'll take honesty and integrity and moral teaching out of the schools. Uh Adrian Rogers I was listening to something the other day and he says so we think it's a great accomplishment at the education level when at a very rudimentary age we look at our children and say hey I want to educate you on safe sex 
and suddenly the societal uh, accolade for that statement is suddenly our authorities have now figured out that they are going to teach a safe way to procreate. Well, God ordained it before man began and discovered it. And as a result, there is nothing damning or dangerous about what God intended for human reproduction. Uh, the word safe sex implies that every other kind of sex that people are having out there is deadly and dastardly and it would lead to, you know, it makes no sense, but they create these nice conjecture of words to make it sound like they have figured it out. Well, that's a page that can be blotted very quickly if you come from a moralist framework. Here are some things I wrote as I begin to get off my rant, but hopefully some of you will enjoy this. And if you don't, just treat it as Monday musings. But these are all fine things that would allow common sense to begin to seep back into your lexicon and make you question some of the randomness of stuff that is thrown at us. The thing we can do as teachers that will allow us to educate for value are quite simple. Instruct people on things they cannot learn on their own. Uh, I remember investing in young people when I would go through a convenience store to get my morning cup of coffee. I truly believe that since I had access to information and imagery that could lead to a better tomorrow, this person making minimum wage, working the night shift, a fellow immigrant like myself, whose only problem in life is right now, hey, will my accent always be a deterrent? Will my being on the night shift always be a problem? Can someone reach down and pull me up? So at 4.30 in the morning, you begin to teach them things they cannot learn on their own, and you do it one step at a time. He says, hey, listen, let's not think we're going to go from the night shift to suddenly inventing some new cure for cancer, and you're going to be a cause celeb. But let's see if we can take one step in front of the other, and in a short-term goal-setting process, get you on the day shift. Then I told them something else, you know, introduce them to people they cannot meet on their own. That's networking. Success is reputation and affiliation. Include them in activities they would not do on their own. Every once in a while, you go to the people who are disenfranchised and you participate in their lives. I've done prison ministry for 25 years, not because listening to me will make them better or because of me somehow the rate of recidivism would go down in American penal institutions. But when they see me participating in activities uh, that they would not do on their own, communication activities that deal with culture, with humanity, with apologetics, with theology. Um, in fact, uh, I work with some people who come out of prison and are in a program and, and I'll leave the state and all out of it. But what we do is we go to that place once a year and we hire them to come and help us feed the homeless. So people who have just been released from incarceration get a chance to see what it is like to do for others when they are still figuring out what to do for themselves. And this goes back to what Carl Menninger, the Menninger Clinic said, if you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders and you feel a nervous breakdown coming on, find someone else with a bigger problem than yours and get involved in solving their problem. So instruct them, on th instruct them on things they cannot learn on their own, introduce them to people they cannot meet on their own, and include them in activities they would not do on their own. As I try to keep this uh, podcast to under 20 minutes and I'm looking at the clock, I suddenly realize that I probably ranted more than I should have. So maybe there is in the very near future a second part or the two-parter to educating with value where we'll cover about six or seven other motifs. Um, and I'll give you some cool stories that go along with that. Until next time, keep investing in other people, lift them up, 
narrow the gap between where they are and where you are. And on your shoulder, on their shoulders, they'll take you across the goalpost of life. If your sheet is unblotted, go to the master who can give you a new one. If you are a teacher and someone feels that they're disenfranchised and they have ruined uh, their output, change their input. Until next time, this is Krish Dunham saying good luck, God bless. And that concludes another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose with Krish Dunham brought to you by Skylife Success. Please subscribe, rate, and visit us on the web at krishdunham.com and skylifesuccess.com where you can find our social media links and access to additional resources. Till next time, happy learning and happy living.